Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and it's been a while since I released a new episode. I do have new episodes recorded and coming soon. But before releasing those, I've decided that in honor of Black History Month, I'm going to go ahead and go back in the archives and re-release a series I did last February on Black motherhood. In this four-part series, a group of Black women who I'm honored to call friends sit down with me and share many aspects of Black motherhood, from the historical to current day to their own experiences as Black mothers. So this month, as we honor Black history and those who built this country while carrying unimaginable pain and trauma, I do hope you'll take more than a minute to listen and learn from their stories and voices. And not just this one month of the year, but every single month of the year. Listen in on these important conversations. Hello and welcome to the second part of the series, A Tribute to Black Motherhood. If you missed part one, go back and listen to that episode before you settle in for this one. Each week for this series, I'll be joined by a group of brilliant black women as they talk about black motherhood. For this episode, I'm joined by writer Marcy Alvis Walker from Black Coffee with White Friends, Naya Abernathy from The Dignity Effect, and historian Letty Gore from The History Shows Us podcast. You are invited to listen in to this powerful conversation as the women discuss the imprint of Black mothers on our country. And just a reminder, some of the content discussed may be triggering, especially for Black bodies. Speaks podcast for week two of celebrating paying honor to Black motherhood. So thank you all for joining me again. Let's just do quick intros again. And folks, hopefully we'll have listened to week one to know your full intro, but we'll also have your bios in the show notes. So Naya, do you want to start us off this week and just tell us who you are, where you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Um, My name is Naya Abernathy. I am in the Atlanta area uh, with my family, my husband and my two kiddos. And I am a public educator over at the Dignity Effect. And that is a social emotional educational platform for adults. And I'm happy to be here talking about the dignity of Black women um, and Black motherhood. Thank you, Naya. Letty, would you go ahead and give an intro? But if people don't know you, I just don't. I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) Hey, my name is Letty Gore. I'm a historian, a racial justice educator. Um, I have a podcast called History Shows Us, and I um, work for myself. I do racial justice and anti-racism consulting. Um, I teach online. I have a platform called Patreon. Well, from a platform called Patreon and a few other ways as well. And yes, I am just excited to be here again for another convo. And Marcy, kind of the the brains and idea behind all of this series. Uh, Do you want to give us a a quick, quick intro, Marcy? Hi, um, I'm um, Marcy Alvis Walker. I'm a writer and Instagrammer and soon to be published author, which is exciting. Um, I'm super excited. I selfishly did this for myself because I just love these women. <laughs> I I love them in a room together talking. And anyone who's listening, if you're like, is this for me? It's for you. Trust me, it's for it's for you. I wish that all of America would listen to these conversations because, you know, if you've ever wondered, um, 
what it's like to live in a black woman's body um, and how we're processing things. Um, you don't need to go to, you know, books by white women. You can actually listen to black female voices. And I'm grateful that you gave us this platform to do that. Thank you, Marcy. And, you know, I'm beyond grateful just to be in this space and learning from you ladies, just editing the last weeks. I just knew stuff. I mean, it's just, it's such an honor just to be here and learn from you guys. And I hope people listeners realize what a privilege that is to be able to just sit and listen and learn at your feet. I certainly do. And I hope the listeners realize that as well. So this week, we're going to talk about the imprint of Black mothers on this country. Last week, we talked about the Black womb, and we're going to move into a new topic today. Although, as Letty always says, they're all so, so related to each other. We ended last week with the joy and celebration question. We're going to start this week with that question because sometimes some weeks people have to leave early and we just want to make sure everybody gets to answer this question. So the joy and celebration question this week is which black women in history do you feel have mothered, nurtured, and helped raise us as a country? And of course, not all have birthed children. So I'll let just whoever wants to go first with that one jump in when you feel feel ready to answer. Well, well, I'll go first. I um, I feel like I could name like a, a million, but um, um, when I really think about, and, when, and I, I need to caution this, so the question is, who have mothered us, nurtured, and helped raise us? Um, I think sometimes Black women's bodies are often put into that sort of mother package, you know? Um, I, I read a statement recently from Oprah. She said it a while back where she didn't want to be anyone's auntie. And I kind of mad respected that. I was like... Yeah, you're you're a billionaire. Like, you know, you're not some, you know, auntie. You are you are no one's calling anyone. No one's calling Bill Gates uncle. You know, I mean, no one's like saying that about the the white people who are doing major things. But there is this qual. All that being said, there is a learning and a training and a rearing up of America that comes through black women. I, I just fully believe that. And right now for me in history, that is Harriet Tubman. I think the very idea that she would literally have to nurture a bunch of people in hostile territory to get them to freedom is amazing. So whenever like, a white mom complains about something, I'm just like, well, you're not Harriet Tubman. You ain't carried by anybody over a river. So I don't really need to hear your complaint because I'm just like, yeah, it's hard raising kids in this world, but, but guess what you're not doing? You're not doing that. So, um, and you probably have help and you probably have family and you probably have, you know, we're, we're talking about some caring and ingenuity along with a pistol. I mean, I just can't. I, I hate that people have kind of taken Harriet Tubman to be just the one black person that they'll allow their children to know in schools instead of the really radical badass she was. Basically, she was a criminal because it was not legal to leave the plantation to work the workhouse. Right. So she she broke the law. She carried a pistol. That's another law. She was a woman doing all this. There's all kinds of stuff happening with that. 
And she did it several times. I don't think people recognize it. So when white women are saying to me that they can't vote for a proper candidate or they can't cut ties with their church or they can't do this and do that, I'm just like, well, lucky for you, you don't have to. You can just live your quiet life doing this. But um, when I think of people like Harriet Tubman, I, for me, when people talk about founding fathers, a phrase that I hate, I'm thinking of founding mothers. And to me, that's a founding mother. You know what I mean? I don't feel that the founding fathers did much of anything that anyone couldn't have done. And that especially the indigenous cultures weren't already doing <laughs> and establishing governments um, in their own tribes. So when I think of, for me, I'm not looking to those people. I'm looking to Ida B. Wells. I'm looking to Harriet Tubman. Those are my founding mothers. Those are the people that found this country for me. Um, I can't rely on the signers of the Constitution. They found nothing for me. Um, so that's what I mean by that, by mothering. And for me right now, the person doing that, um, besides all my lovely friends that I we've gathered here, um, there's so many women out here doing it. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones just, I'm just like, Oh, the books that will be written. Thank you. Um, and the things that she's doing and challenging and saying um, for the betterment of our whole society, even for those who don't recognize that. You know what I mean? Even for that. And I wouldn't dare call her an auntie because she's just too much of a badass for me to be like trying to. It's it's a to me it's a way of belittling the strides that a black woman has made is to kind of put her back into some, well, we can't call her mammy, so we'll call her auntie. So I'm a little like, you know, I don't necessarily have a problem with black people who feel that way about black women, but I do have a problem when white America is calling, you know, a congresswoman auntie. I'm like, she's not your damn auntie. You know, I was like, she's not, neither is Oprah, neither is Toni Morrison, neither, neither is Mother Maya. You know, when I'm saying it as a black woman, it's an endearment of the freedom that they laid for us, Audre Lorde and all these people. So I'm off my soapbox now. That's just how I feel. You, you stay, <laughs> on your, stay on your soapbox, Marcy. Do not get off. Okay. <laughs> uh, Marcy, I, uh, I, I appreciate the um, delineation you made around what it what it can mean still respecting oprah's request what it can mean for a black woman to say auntie versus you know somebody else i know for me <clears throat> because i when i look at how i grew up i grew up in a, a constructed matriarchal village right and so uh, the aunties for me <clears throat> were the ones who were coming alongside my mom and helping helping me to know who I am. Uh, they wouldn't have used these words, but like grounding me in my own dignity. I didn't realize until I was an adult, things like women can't preach in church or what, like that kind of stuff is very foreign to me. And I know that that exists in some black church contexts too, but just the whole like women can't 
blank enter whatever you want was very foreign to me because of those women. And so I will always respect somebody who's like, girl, I ain't trying to, okay, I won't call you that. Um, but I know from, for me, uh, it very much is, uh, it is, it's, it comes, my desire is to honor somebody. And there's a connection there that is, it's not cute. You know, uh, it is, it's something that's really uh, meaningful. That being said, I, I think about the, the prominent women that were always on my mother's bookshelf that came up in conversation that you saw doing certain things. Um, and I think the two women that I think about are Maya Angelou and, uh, uh, Coretta Scott King. And as I have gotten older and learned more about both of these women, it's when I think about, um, who are the women who have mothered and nurtured and helped raise a country out of the garbage that it was founded on. Those are the women I think of who continue, you know, Dr. King is assassinated. Coretta's like, all right, we gonna keep going. And I'm not talking about some toxic, resilient, strong black woman stuff. It was, this stuff was in her too. Like she wasn't just like my husband, Martin, is doing the work and I'm here supporting him. She was like, I'm about the work too. Um, and continued the work. And, you know, even on this past MLK day, Dr. Bernice King said, you know, as you honor my father, remember my mom. She said this, and I'm reading it. She says, Coretta Scott King was the architect of the King legacy. That's not a small little, like, can you just remember her because she was nice? Like, no, like the whole thing was, if I'm reading it right, she's saying this whole thing was built on the legacy that my mother insisted we would leave as a family. And, you know, Bernice doesn't have any children. Their, uh, their, their other uh, late daughter, Yolanda King, didn't have any children, but they continued to bring things into our culture and continue to raise us and say, no, this is the way we need to go. Maya Angelou's word showed up in books and, you know, from books to like inaugural presidential celebration. I mean, she just, uh, she's in people's stories. If you read Jessica B. Harris, who um, did the high on the hog, if you read her memoir, my angel was there. I'm just like, you was in my angel was hanging out with James Baldwin. Like this woman has been in all the places. And so when she gives us her word, these are not, th these are things forged in a life that's been lived mixed into how this country has, has been constructed. And it's coming out of that, that she gives us words to say, no, this is the way we need to move forward. Let's leave behind this stuff. And this is what we need to do. And I feel like that is an essential part of mothering. Yeah. So good. Thank you, Naya. All right, Letty. First of all, Marcy and Naya, those were amazing responses. And I was feeling all of what you all were saying, especially Marcy, like what you said to make this point that Naya, you also made the point about um, the, the auntie, right? Like how it's, it's this, it's this word that's like, Oh, this is, this is cool to say. And auntie, this, not to that. And it's like, actually, actually white people, y'all need to stop. Right. And also it's just, for me, it is doing an injustice to some black women in, in history. It's not, it's not that simple. It's not as simple as like, I, I wouldn't call Fannie Lou Hamer an auntie ever, like absolutely ever in my life. Right. Like, it's just not, that's too simplistic for a woman who was like the, a leading iconic, powerful voice in the movement, but uh, who I would say uh, is someone that I see in history as a mother or who mothered is um, Ella Baker. 
she is someone I've always seen as the mother of the movement. Um, because she was that actually for so many young black activists, uh, whenever she was helping uh, or continuing to help with the student nonviolent coordinating committee, like they looked at her, like they, they looked up to her. Um, she was able to offer wisdom and things that she had experienced in her personal life and ways to navigate the racist violence, uh, ways to think. And, you know, people think about movements and organizing people often think about just the physical aspects, right? The, when to go protest and who we're going to get to do it. But the organizing also often involved a lot of trainings, a lot of conversations around your spirit, where, where you were, what you were struggling with, how to overcome that. There was a lot of um, spirituality within these things. And so I just think of Ella Baker, I think of mothering and really too, because she doesn't get the credit that she's due. Black women never do, especially for the civil rights movement. Like black women never do, right? It's always the men who are the faces of the movement. You know, and when people think of the civil rights movement, probably one of the first faces they think of most people in this country is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right. But there would have not, there wouldn't have been any Dr. King if it wasn't for Ella Baker, because Ella Baker was actually with him in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She's the one who helped organize things for him. She's the one who wrote a lot of his speeches. She's the one who, yeah, right. They don't get the credit and the act of mothering, what that means, what that meant in the black community for many different reasons is why I said Al Baker. So, okay, Letty. So we're going to dive into history now. So I'm going to let you, let you keep talking and I'm going to just let you decide where you want to start with this. I actually have something that I want to read because I think it'd be a good conversation starter for all of us here. I want to start with reading this because it is a firsthand account of a black woman who was a domestic worker in 1912. And this is from the Independent, um, which was a newspaper. It's dated January 25th, 1912. And it was titled, was, is titled More Slavery at the South by a Negro Nurse. That's the only title that it has. So I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from this and then go into like why I wanted to read that. And then perhaps we can have a combo. Okay. This starts off as I am a Negro woman and I was born and reared in the South. I am now past 40 years of age and am the mother of three children. My husband died nearly 15 years ago after we had been married about five years for more than 30 years or since I was 10 years old, 10 years old. I have been a servant in one capacity or, or another in white families in a thriving Southern city, which has at present a population of more than 50,000. In my early years, I was at first what might be called a house girl or better, a house boy. I used to answer the doorbell, sweep the yard, go on errands and do odd jobs. 
Later on, I became a chambermaid and performed the usual duties of such a servant in a home. Still later, I was graduated into a cook in which position I served at different times for nearly eight years in all. During the last 10 years, I have been a nurse. I have worked in only four different families during all these 30 years, but belonging to the servant class, which is the majority class among my race at the South and associating only with servants, I have been able to become intimately acquainted, not only with the lives of hundreds of household servants, but also with the lives of their employers. Um, A little further down, she says, I frequently work from 14 to 16 hours a day. I am compelled by my contract, which is oral only to sleep in the house. I am allowed to go home to my own children, the oldest of whom is a girl of of 18 years, only once in two weeks, every other Sunday afternoon. Even then, I'm not permitted to stay all night. I not only have to nurse a little white child, now 11 months old, but I have to act as playmate or handy Andy, not to say governess to three other children in the home, the oldest of whom is only nine years of age. I wash and dress the baby two or three times each day. I give it its meal mainly from a bottle. I have to put it to bed each night. And in addition, I have to get up and also attend to its every call between midnight and morning. If the baby falls to sleep during the day, as it has been trained to do every day about 11 o'clock, I am not permitted to rest. It's mammy do this or mammy do that or mammy do this other thing from my mistress all the time. So it is not strange to see mammy watering the lawn in front with the garden hose, sweeping the sidewalk, mopping the porch and halls, dusting around the house, helping the cook or darning stockings. Not only so, but I have to put the other three children to bed each night as well as the baby and I have to wash them and dress them each morning. I don't know what it is to go to church. I don't know what it is to go to a lecture or other forms of entertainment or anything of the kind. I live a treadmill life and I see my own children only when they happen to see me on the streets when I am out with the children or when my children come to the yard to see me, which isn't often because my white folks don't like to see their servants' children hanging around their their premises. You might as well say that I'm on duty all the time from sunrise to sunset and then sunrise again. Every day in the week, I am the slave body and soul of this family. I'm going to pause there for just a moment because I want to say a few things about this time. So 1912 is before the Great Depression. And often what's happened, what happens in history is people look at the Great Depression and then the New Deal that came after and they're like, oh, but but the government helped. But the government gave the money to everyone. The government wanted to help everyone. That is a thousand percent not true. So technically, did the government give out, I don't know, three to four billion dollars of help? Sure. But let's think about what we just saw here in the United States in the last two years with who got funds right during COVID. It's easy for the government to say, oh, but we have helped people. Businesses have gotten loans. I know people that didn't get loans who literally lost their businesses, right? So we have to understand that because the government does a thing does not mean that it is going to everyone. And so the government funded jobs program um, operated first under FERA, F-E-R-A, which was the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which was under Franklin Roosevelt. And this occurred after the Great Depression. So we're talking 1930. So the Great Depression, for people who don't know, was from August 1929 until fall of 1933. And then 1933 to 1935, you saw all of these programs and things to help the American people. So 
you had FIRA and then you also later had the Works Progress Administration, which was known as WPA, which did provide government assistance for black domestic workers. Right. But it was at the price of sustaining traditional relationships of black women's service to white families. So it did not give any relief to black women who were re-enslaved, basically weren't able to see their families. It did not help them. They did not. They still did not get um, more money and these things like that. No, 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 no. Their pain did not increase. That's not what happened. It just, the money went to these white families, the white families, right. Who then were able to pay the same measly bullshit um, prices to these black domestic workers. And that's what people miss. So I wanted to make that very clear um, while I'm reading this firsthand account, because what I'm reading that happened in 1912 with this black nurse was also happening in 1950 uh, and in 1933 and in 1935. So it's another part that I want to read. She goes on to say perhaps. So before this part, she's talking about the pay amount and how it wasn't anything and how she was not able to provide for her children and, and things like that. But she goes on to say, perhaps some might say if the poor pay is the only thing about which we have to complain, then the slavery in which we daily toil and struggle is not so bad after all. But the poor pay isn't all, not by any means. I remember very well the first and last place from which I was dismissed. I lost my place, meaning she lost her job, because I refused to let the madam's husband kiss me. He must have been accustomed to undue familiarity with his servants, or else he took it as a matter of course, because without any lovemaking at all, soon after I was installed as cook, he walked up to me, threw his arms around me, and was in the act of kissing me when I demanded to know what he meant and shoved him away. I was young then and newly married and didn't know then what has been a burden to my mind and heart ever since that a colored woman's virtue in this part of the country has no protection. There is much more that she said and wrote, but those are two main parts I wanted to point out because whenever we think about black women as domestic workers, and I'm saying domestic workers because that's the terminology that's technically correct. I would say just re-enslaved Black women. The violence, the levels of violence, those are not discussed. They're not discussed at all. They still got reprimanded physically and they didn't do something. From what you heard me reading, she was not able to see her children, her own children, her own children. And her own children would see her if she happened to be maybe going to a store real quick to get a few things. So what in the world was the white mom doing? Nothing. Literally nothing. Nothing. And I can only imagine, like, can you imagine the emotional weight of that? Like, and then to be subjected to forced sexual assault from these white husbands, which happened often. This is not the only time, right? And just because she shoved him away or whatever, you best believe there's something in that newspaper that she did not write. There's something in there that she did not say. There are so many accounts people can read where they were forced to have sex with these white husbands. Yes, they were forced to do all kinds of things. And you can even read sometimes where the husband would make the wife allow it or they would have to get rid of the help and get somebody else. I know that was a lot and it was probably heavy to hear, but people need to hear it because I'm really tired of people wanting to romanticize this idea of, of the black woman who was literally experiencing more emotional and mental and physical turmoil than is even 
that's written about sin that's talked about and it's maddening y'all probably heard my voice like increasing in anger as i was reading because it's just you can't read that stuff and not feel something i would like for us to like chat about that and marcy i see you have something to say I have I have no words, I, I really, but I do have a question because as you're speaking, Letty, and I'm just constantly learning things from you because I think the thing that you do with history that's so beautiful is that you, you're able to make connections and through lines. I feel like through lines should hire you, like that podcast needs you on there. <laughs> um, but um, I think that the way that you, you're able to see through lines is really astounding because because what you made me see when you were speaking of that, the domestic, the man coming up, there was just, Naya and I are like messaging each other as you're speaking and all kinds of exp- exclamations. And then you had said, when you got to the part about the man coming up and trying to kiss her, I immediately thought of Rosa Parks' story of being a, a black domestic. But then what I thought is you talked about Ella Baker and you talked about the women of the movement. I thought, oh my gosh, I've never made the connection until you said it, that the bus boycott, the women being, the people at the back of the bus were mostly black women. It would have been mostly black women domestics whose husbands probably took the car or carpooled or hopped on the back of a, of a um, farm truck to get to work, or they were sharecropping at, on the land while the wife went out to get more money working in the house. So it would have been mostly black mothers at the back of the bus, black women at the back of the bus, who even if they weren't mothers, they were mothering somebody's child, you know? And so we don't think about that. Like even in the story of To Kill a Mockingbird, we don't think about the fact that Calperna was at the back of the bus (laughs) when she was coming to take care of Scout and Jim. And if she stayed there, because there's just one little part in the book where it talks about her family, it's a a sliver, y'all. If you blink or you decide to skip that page, you'll miss it. But um, she has a black church and she has a black community. And my thinking is that, wow, if she stayed there, she would have not been able to help her family and not just children if she had children but because of the poverty in black communities i'm imagining that like naya being raised with all the aunties helping to raise the children all these women would have been having to be outside of the home and it's just another way of disturbing and separating black families domestic work i'm looking at this and i'm just like ooh, letty yes yes that's so good like that's so good i'm so glad like you made that connection because it was just that separating black families and the bus boycott yes people look at it and they're like oh it was just the bus boycott because they were just tired of just racism and that's it. No, 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 no. Right. Because people also don't understand that and know who Rosa Parks was before she was the black woman that refused to give her seat up on the bus. Right. Rosa Parks was a field secretary for the NAACP. Rosa Parks is who went and got Reese Taylor's story about being raped. Right. By Oh, I'm sorry. 
There was no trigger warning for that. I'm so sorry. Trigger warning. Raped by these white men, right? Rosa Parks is who was driving in these backwoods of Alabama and which was very risky. It's still risky, actually, in 2022, just to let y'all know. Um, It's not changed. Uh, (laughs) There's places in North Carolina that I wouldn't drive in at night. But so it's, it's not a coincidence that Rosa Parks refused to give her seat up. And I say that with that language because she didn't just sit down. No, she refused to give her seat up because what was also happening, right, is you have these Black women before, right, like Mary Church Terrell and those who were in the Black women's suffragist movement who were having these meetings. They had these organizations where they were talking about this violence. And so the organizing and the planning, this was happening for years, for decades, right? Like there were ways of resistance that were being talked about. And so whenever you have these Black women who were at the front of the Montgomery bus boycott, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. It's the violence they were experiencing in these white people's homes, which was also their place of residence. I don't say home for them because it's not a home for them. It was their place of residence where they were forced to stay. And so, yes, Marcy, uh, once you listen to it, right, even like just hearing that firsthand account, right, with this black woman made your mind be like, oh, wait a second. And this is why, this is why whenever people talk about history, you have to read the words of those that were, that came before and that experienced it. So some of the work that I do um, at the Dignity Effect is focused on parenting. And so, and I have worked with families with open defects cases, you know, parenting education, all these different things. And my first thought as you're reading this lady is where is they mama? You have a whole mom, a whole, she's not dead. She's not incapacitated. She's, you know, she don't, I don't know, work out of the country. Like what's she doing? She just sitting on a couch eating bonbons. Where you at girl? Come get your kids. Yeah. (laughs) That's the same reaction that I've had, like that I still have. Yes. That is what they're doing. They're sitting on the couch. They were doing whatever. And like and today, your CPSs mm-hmm. or your defaxes, you couldn't do that stuff. You could, you couldn't. Somebody would report you because you you can't do that. There's your children. But you know, this is a conversation for a different time. But instead, they they take other people's kids. But like, why are you having children? Why am I supposed to take care of your children? And again, some of this is it's more complicated. There's economics and there's other things. This is what, you know, black women had access to and they had to make the money because the, I know this is not a simple question. But when I'm just looking at this and through the lens that I'm looking at as somebody who is asking the question, where is dignity being dishonored and why? For what reason? There isn't a good one. Let me just spoiler alert. There's not a good reason. Whatever reason that somebody has in their mind for why they need a domestic worker who is supposed to do all the things for your kids, be available to your husband or else she gets beaten or else she gets trigger warning, raped or else she or else she gets fired. And that's that's the thing, right, is with what I was talking about before with like the works progress administration and everything at that time there was also this other social aspect to it with dividing gender appropriate jobs and that was across the board that was this view of who should do what work 
And that's a whole other ballpark. That's what I'm, like, and so you you had women cooked and cleaned and sewn and did all these clerical jobs while men like would design and construct, right? But you had the gender lines, but you also had the gender and race lines. So then you also had white women who were learning how to maybe care for their home or how to be a proper woman. There, there were a lot of etiquette things too that white women were supposed to learn. But it was the Black women who were the ones who had to clean the toilets and had had to do everything. They were actually the ones who were cleaning the home and doing all the things. And you had the white men, right, who were um, defined as being skilled and deserving of the correct pay and, and, and wages that were denied to Black men. And that goes back to what we talked about last week with these stereotypes, right, of who was fit and unfit. And those who were fit, right, who were deemed allowed to be esteemed and supreme in the country, which was white people. And then those who were just, uh, you just, you should just be grateful for whatever you can get. It was that. But the other thing too, and I want to make this point is white women own enslaved people, white women. That was what they could own. They could own property. This image of white women during slavery as, oh, they were just at home and had nothing to do. And their husband, no, 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 no. These white women were ruthless, actually. Uh, Stephanie Jones Rogers book, They Were Her Property is honestly an essential addition to historical discourse in the last 30 years. It's incredible because the only, the other book that I've read before that even touched on that was um, by uh, her last name is Fox Genovese. It's called In the Plantation Household. And that book was in the early 2000s. And now Stephanie Jones Rogers like cited her and was like, I'm gonna go a step further, right? And so what you saw too, right? Were these white women, in the 20th century who were able to have that again, right? Who were able to take that role again as the mistress that owned the people, that owned the property. They still saw black people as property. You didn't see us as human. Go ahead, Marcy. I'm just on a roll. I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. I have so many questions for you, honey. So many but I'm wondering what in our history, the, everything that you're talking about and, and Naya, what you were saying about what were the white women doing and, and the dignity thing. I always find it very strange that now the amount of times where as a mom, my home was scrutinized or wasn't safe for white children to come and have a play date. You know, like, was I a safe caretaker, which I find so odd because of the history, I'm just like, well, we've been taking care of your children forever, so we're fine, you know? It should be me worrying about my child going into your home, not the other way around. Secondly, Letty, I wonder if there's um, a connection to, so we have the serialization happening of Black women because of eugenics, also because of the fear of, you know, now we're free and there looks to be too many suddenly, you know? Because when we weren't free, there weren't enough. We couldn't produce enough black people, right? But then the minute that black people are free, it's like, oh, there's so many, right? Um, so yes. they start sterilizing. But I also think, and I'm wondering, Letty, if this is something that you've seen in history, if part of the reason that they had the domestic help, what the woman's job was, 
the white mother's job was was preserved by procreating like the more white children you had the better which then ties into the whole anti-abortion thing which isn't so much about the anti-abortion of black babies but the anti-abortion of white babies because the biggest fear of the white conservative movement is too many brown and black people right right so the best thing that you can do is to have as many babies as you can the whole quiver full and preserve the white race so is there like i know you know and i'm looking at you nodding and i'm i'm almost yeah. afraid for you to answer <laughs> yeah yeah but i feel like yeah. go there go there a lot of thoughts. I should have like started writing stuff down as I was thinking because my mind is just going now. But yes, yeah, so it's, I'm going to say this. People often want like concrete proof of things, right? Like, oh, but I want concrete proof of this. I'm like, oh, not always concrete proof of anything, right? Okay, I'm going to get back to what you said, but I want to use this as one example. So um, at one point when I was in grad school and I was researching, uh, I was doing a lot of work with the Black Panther Party. I was looking at numbers of Black men who were being drafted during the Vietnam War and how it increased, and it was no coincidence, they were being um, drafted from these states or cities that were, uh, you had a lot more Black power, jargon, right? But also you had the sterilization of black women was increasing as well. So when you look at magazines like Ebony, you start seeing more ads in the mid fifties about taking care of yourself, right? Making sure you ask questions like the doctor's office and all these things. You can easily attribute that to people who are more educated want to know, oh, of course, but also it's because you also saw an increasing number of black women who were being sterilized because in 61, you had the Mississippi amphidectomy. So then you saw more Ebony ads in the magazines about taking care of yourself. There's no coincidence about that, right? It's Black people looking out for Black people on a collective level in a way, okay? So anyway, getting back to what you were saying, Marcia, I'm going to use that example because, yes, you can argue that, right? That um, you started seeing, right, even with with uh, birth birth control, okay? People look and they're like, oh, but people have always had access to birth control. No, actually, white women at one point had a harder time getting birth control than black women did. Black women were used as experiments for birth control, but white women actually had a harder time sometimes getting the birth control. I wonder why. Well, we want to get into a conversation about white male patriarchy right now. Let me get into that. Okay, so that's, that's a whole thing that goes with this and then why white women were having the babies and we want to get into the whole religion aspect and needing to honor your husband. That's another thing, but that's a whole thing. <laughs> but yes, they, you had black women who were, who were the guinea pigs with the nor plant shot that were being injected with all kinds of things in order to see what would work. But you didn't have white women who had, who were able to get the pill openly because their husbands would beat them. And I'm going to say that by like, white men. Yes, would beat their wives for trying to get the birth control pills and things like that. Yes, that happened. Um, and so whenever you see black women who are being sterilized at higher rates, you can't argue, oh, it was because they didn't want us having more children so we could take care of theirs. We wouldn't have to go home to ours. 
And that sounds very like this country wouldn't do that. <laughs> yes, it would. And it did. Do y'all live here actually at all ever? Uh, I just don't understand. I mean that. I'm, I'm, I mean that so seriously. As much history as I read and know and connect, I still have moments where I'm like, y'all really think these things did not happen and aren't still happening? So yeah, Marcy, I hope that answered your question without me going into a whole hour rant about that question just by itself, because we could be here. Because honestly, the branches with this. Letty, I appreciate you naming something in what you just said, where you said they happened and they are still happening. That's the part when we talk about history, that people think that all of this stuff is something that needs to be reconciled from the past. And then we can hold hands and skip in the tulips and sing Kumbaya. And I'm like, uh, no, no, you can't. Because like we have family histories. We could speak from personal places and say, I know the person this is still happening to, or the person who it did happen to. I'm not going to tell you nobody's business, but if you want concrete proof, then you should listen to black women. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that constantly infuriates me is whenever I do say things like this and people are like, oh, well, how do you know that? Well, where where did they write that? Y'all really think that they're going to write down everything they did? They don't do that now. What are you talking about? One of the big fears that I have with telling history and learning from history in 50 years, even 30 years is the lack of written documentation. You can have, have a message. You can just delete it. You can delete files on computers now, right? It's, it's scary to think possibly how much proof we won't have for things like we will, but it's just me as the like historian that I am being able to go and find that like newspaper and being able to read that, right? Like stuff like that matters so much. So I'm going to get off of that. My soapbox for a minute. Bloody, like my mind is just Wow. Like I just, no, you I are mean, just incredible with the history and like Marcy said, just connecting the dots. And I'm just seeing so many more things that I was like, wait, now I don't know if you guys want to go to this, but I mean the whole abortion, we don't have to, but so that's related too, right? And we, again, we don't have to go there, but I'm, my own mind is just learning. And, it's, and you can find yeah. that just with the founder of, Her of Heritage Foundation, Paul Weyrick, who um, former Vice President Pence eulogized yes. as a mentor, who was a staunch segregationist and who was very much about the preservation of whiteness. And there's lots about Christians didn't care about abortion as far as the legality or the whether it should be legal or not legal, they were much more concerned with just the flourishing of the white family. And so the fact of that is, and they pinned it on, we care for black lives and black people are getting so many abortions, but really it was never even about that. It was just a way to get white women worried about the, the, the black babies that would be killed or the white babies that be, be killed. And then also to get far right, alt right organizations to be outraged that a white woman would kill a white baby. So yeah, that's not, that's not, I mean, it's history, but it's not, it's not history. I mean, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's now it's Paul Rayrick, Wayrick. When, when did he die? Not all that long ago. I mean, and his mm -hmm. foundation is the leading, the leading is leading the charge on CRT, uh, on anti-CRT anti-teaching of anti-racism. So when Mike Pence said that there is no racism, there's no such thing as 
systemic racism in the debate where the fly landed on his head because the fly knew something that was like (laughs) yeah he is coming from a long history of that narrative and that narrative really does start with black women and it starts with the home and there's a lot that goes into that and and Letty you just oh my gosh you just illuminated so much beginning with that letter and the beginning with the words because you can't dispute someone's experience you can you can say all you want to say but you can't dispute those documents that speak a truth that we may not want to know or we'd rather see the help the movie the help or we'd rather see read to kill a mockingbird or we want to you know like we want to we want to make it okay like these women chose these careers they didn't choose these careers no more than a slave chose to pick cotton tobacco or sugarcane this yeah. is what was there for them yes and that was such a good you just made me think about something too there are a lot of little parts in the help that after i watched it the first time and i watched it again I've watched The Help probably five or six times just because I've had conversations about it and things like that. And you, there are some movies that you will get something different from every time you watch it. Like the um, Cover Purple is one of those movies for me. I can watch it a thousand times. I'm going to get something new from it every time. But in The Help, there's a part where one of the Black women who is a domestic worker, her daughter is also dressed in one of the uniforms and is going to work. And can see it's such a powerful moment that's not highlighted when you can see the look on the mom's face and she wants her to look right right like she wants her uniform to look good and she told her it was something to the it wasn't the exact words but she said to her like don't talk back or don't bad mouth or something she said to her daughter about like don't talk back whenever you go to work and people can look at that and say oh well she was just trying to make sure that her daughter kept the job no it was for her daughter's protection she didn't want her daughter to think that she could just go there right and be a black girl no you have to go there and be a black girl who is now a servant to this white woman or to this white man and taking care of these white children and she hugged her daughter or or she was looking at her in a way that was there there was some fear people who are listening go back and watch it you're going to see all these other little parts that you may have missed the first time you're going to see it that wasn't just the i want you to keep this job she was having to send her daughter to work to help pay the bills because they weren't making any money anyway. And so she knew what she could experience. She already knew. It's the same way that enslaved Black women would have to sit there, right, and know they're going to have to have a conversation with their daughter one day about they're going to come and take you one night or you're going to have to do this thing. And whenever they are, trigger warning, whenever he is raping you, you're going to have to make sure you don't do this, make sure that you don't tense up your body, make sure that you don't fight back. There are literal accounts that talk about this. I have books about it. Yeah, there are, you can find the stuff. And this is why there are people talk about history. And what I do as a historian, I don't just retell history. I take these kinds of documents and I read them. Right? I read this horrific history and it helps me be able to argue what I'm arguing. That's the way that we add to historical discourse, right? Is listening to and reading the words of this black woman who was a nurse. And then Marcy, like what you were doing today, literally having these moments of wow. But also Marcy, you're able to have these moments of wow, because you already do very incredible work with how you read and write. You're also a black woman. You also have this other, we have this other stuff in us (laughs) to know like, 
oh, like this is making me feel a way, right? Because whether our bodies know where it's coming from or not, it's something that's generationally been passed down in our DNA that's been trauma, like it's trauma, right? Like we feel it. We don't know maybe where it's coming from, but we feel something. And that's a whole other conversation, right? About generational trauma and what that looks like and how it shows up. And so when we look at today, Black parents who want their kids to go to work and make sure that like you act a certain way, like act right. Yes. It's because right. Like respect and that kind of thing. Sure. Sure. And also I think about like my parents and uh, probably what, what my dad was thinking before of about to go work for these white people. Just be careful. He didn't say that to me, but I know that's what he was trying to say. You can just me being 33 now, I get it. I'm, I'm not even a like mother yet. I can't even imagine what I'm going to feel like as a mother. Props to all Black mothers out here, honestly, because I think about how I am with just my, my nephew and I'm an aunt. And I'm like, oh gosh. And he's a mixed child. He's Black and white. And I still know I'm like, well, he's black though, but right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. He'll, he's still black. My brother's black. Um, his mom is white. Sure. But he's black. And I think about things. And so anyway, I'm going on a rant again. Cause I just have a lot of thoughts too, but it's all so yeah. much, but I hope we as humans, white women can just put ourselves and feel those things and see why now it's so important to listen to black women, to say black lives matter, to fight these injustices. I mean, yeah, you guys don't need to hear my voice, but it's just, um, I just appreciate it a lot, Letty. And it is a lot, but I just thank you for always being here to tell the truth of it all. Marcy, anything else, any final word? And we'll wrap up here. No, if, I, if anything, if, if Letty wants to give a final word, I think that would be okay. appropriate. If there's a way that you can link to the books, some of the books that yes. you because um, those are some good starts especially for white women to understand the role played so yeah yeah, yeah. and i'll definitely link they were her property i think i've linked it before because i know that's one that i read a while ago letty when you recommended and that is just a must read especially for white women yeah. and maybe link the full article that you're the full narrative that you read and anything else that you might recommend letty but i'll let you have the final say here and yeah. To wrap up, I also want to make a point real quick too of whenever you then see, right? Like we're talking about like, what were the white mothers doing? This country has the audacity to call black women, right? Lazy and feeding off of the system and not wanting to ever do anything. Really, All of that was always just a response to black women demanding more and saying, we're not going to continue to put up with this. That was the reaction this country had to black women was you're just lazy. How am I lazy? How were my ancestors lazy? If they're over here taking their bodies, taking their breast milk, that is, that is literally formulated for their children, taking it, giving it to breastfeeding these white babies during slavery, after slavery, well into the 60s, and toiling and doing everything, right? And then calling this lazy or saying that you don't want us. And this is a, this is something else to tie the help. And I know that we're ending, but I just want to make these points real quick with, with the help of um, not wanting us to use your toilets. Like there's that part in like the help and people see that and it's like, yeah, you don't want us to use your bathrooms and stuff. You want us to touch your children and raise your children and rate, do all of the things. These And, and, and I use that language on purpose. I say touch your children because people don't want to touch us. So what? Literally, white America, like, what is wrong with even now? You have so much to reckon with. The anger, the 
the level of anger that white women had and still have toward black women because they would watch their white husbands triggering rape black women or want black women be attracted to black women and black girls not just black women black girls i'm gonna make that a very big point here because these are 12 and 13 year old girls we're talking about that were being assaulted by white men anyway going to end <laughs> i had to i had to make those points but i say all that to say it's critical that people listen to the words like of this black nurse people listen to my voice people listen to marcy people listen to naya and just even listening marcy to how you were so mad and you were just so flustered right earlier because there were so many emotions like this is what we experience this is this is the this is the america that we're in this is the history that the country hasn't reckoned with this is the history that the country doesn't want to acknowledge when are white people going to stop making excuses? When are you going to accept the fact that this is what you're continuing to allow? You're continuing to function in the same system, in the same, or in, in the society under the same system, right? With these racist, with these white supremacist ideals. And yeah, I'm going to find my, my period there. But I just, that, that's, that's really how I want to close this. And also tying it back to Black mothers at the beginning, the sacrifices and what it means to mother, right? what it really means to mother. So when we're sitting here today saying, well, what were white mothers doing? You're right. What were they doing? Were, were they mothers? And I mean that. We're going to talk about mothering. Were they mothers? Because if, if I'm going to be real, the black women were the mothers to all these white children. Absolutely. While neglecting their own. And then the country wants to say, oh, well, there's an issue in like, the black community. Yeah, that y'all have caused. But we don't want to have that conversation. So there's that. Last week, I have an important ask for those of you who are listening and learning from the voices of Black women in this series. Although my goal for the podcast has never been to make money for myself, I would like to honor each of the guests for this series and compensate them for their time. I'm asking listeners to consider donating minimum of a dollar for each time they download and listen to an episode in this series. Money can be given to the Venmo address, Her Story Speaks, and all of the money given will be divided equally among the guests for this series. Also, please go check out the show notes for this episode at HerStorySpeaks.com, where you'll find the links to sign up for my guest newsletters and Patreon accounts, and links to the resources that Letty shared. And finally, if this episode spoke to you, please share it with a friend or on social media so others can learn from the voices and stories of Black women. Thank you.